This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Developing therapeutics for rare diseases can be challenging and not just because of the small patient populations. Often the progression of a disease is not well understood, the patient population can be heterogeneous, and the development of objective and meaningful endpoints for a trial can be difficult. We spoke to Rolf Roskamp, Chief Medical Officer of Discerna, about how his company has navigated the various challenges in its effort to develop a treatment for a rare liver disorder, how it finds patients, and how it determines endpoints. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to talk about the challenges of developing a rare disease therapy and have you walk us through how a company like Discerna goes about addressing some of those issues. Perhaps we could begin with primary hyperluxuria, a family of rare diseases that Discerna is developing its lead therapeutic candidate to address. What is primary hyperluxuria? How, how rare is it? What's the prognosis for a patient with the condition today? Yes, primary hyperluxuria is uh, a rare disease with a prevalence of around one to three cases per one million population. That means in the U.S., uh, you will have around uh, 1,000 patients uh, with this disease. Um, I personally, uh, when I joined uh, Dicerna, I hadn't heard about the disease. Um, it's uh, uh, as rare. And uh, it's uh, uh, a life-threatening and serious disease. Uh, uh, patients, uh, in, mostly in their early childhood, uh, uh, develop uh, renal stones. And uh, physicians um, mostly uh, think about it, yeah, well, uh, really don't know where this is coming from. And that's a one-time event. And only when they uh, get uh, a couple of these stones, they start thinking that there must be something behind this disease. And um, in, as the disease uh, progresses, uh, around 50% of these patients actually uh, develop end-stage renal disease uh, in their uh, uh, late 20s and uh, need a, a kidney transplantation. Um, so in the difficulty I think we're, we are having here is that physicians just uh, don't think about uh, disease because it is so rare. You have an RNAi platform technology that's particularly well suited 
for addressing genetic diseases in, involving the liver. How did Dicerna decide to pursue primary hyperluxuria? Uh, the company, what the company has done with its platform technology, looks at uh, a wide range of diseases uh, which originate from malfunctioning of genes in the liver because uh, uh, we deliver uh, our drugs directly to the liver and only to the liver. Uh, and there are a wide range of uh, um, metab metabolic pathways which are regulated uh, in the liver and you come up with a long list of potential diseases. And then the company went through all of those, looking which of them uh, are already addressed, um, are already treatable, or which of them are uh, still huge unmet needs because nobody is working on them. And one among these diseases was uh, primary hypooxaluria. How well understood was the progression of the disease, and, and how heterogeneous is it? Did, did a natural history exist? Yes, there is some natural history. So there are two registries. One uh, out of the U.S., run by the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and one group by a consortium of physicians in Europe, Oxford Europe, um, who actually look at the natural history of the disease and, and they have published uh, data and follow-up data uh, of patients over 10, 15, 20 years. So in general, that's where we know that how the disease progresses, uh, that the amount of uh, oxalate excretion in the urine uh, uh, is uh, a good predictor of the series of the disease. Um, so that, that's well understood. On an individual level, though, the problem is that there isn't a good relationship between the actual genotype of the disease and the disease manifestation. So it can be that in one family, who has the same genetic mutation, that one sibling uh, has the first symptoms after a couple of years uh, with uh, a stone event, and then maybe a couple of years another stone event, and then slowly deteriorates, and the other sibling has a fulminant manifestation of the disease uh, when he or she is three months old, and uh, uh, presents with acute uh, kidney failure. So the, what we call the genotype-phenotype relationship um, is not very strong. So on an individual basis, it's hard to predict whether a patient actually follows a certain path or uh, another path. What is the FIO study and, and how are you using that? The FIO study was a study, a natural observation study, um, where we actually looked at the variability of 
the urinary oxalate excretion. Um, there are very few published data uh, amongst patients uh, with uh, primary hypooxaluria uh, how much variable this uh, measurement is. So in this study, patients had to collect on four occasions uh, over six months, 24-hour uh, urine, and this was measured for the oxalate uh, 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 content in this 24-hour urine. And we looked at the variability of this measurement over time, and we found around uh, a 20 to 30% variability in this measurement. This means for a clinical trial, um, if your so-called effect size, so the effect of your drug uh, on this measure of oxalate excretion is only 20 or 30 percent, you most likely will not be able to show it because it will be within the noise of the measurement. So only if you will be having a drug which has um, effect on the oxalate excretion of more than 30%, 50% or 60% or 70%, you will be able to find this out definitely with a clinical trial. How did that uh, affect the way you thought about endpoints for the trial and what are the endpoints you're looking at? Well, we believe that there is a good rationale for uh, the measurement of oxalate in the urine as a so-called surrogate endpoint. Let me step back a second. What is a surrogate endpoint? A surrogate endpoint is an endpoint which likely predicts benefit. So we don't know 100% that it will predict a clinical benefit. It will likely predict the benefit. And the reason why we believe that urinary oxalate is a good surrogate endpoint is for three reasons. One is that there is a good biological plausibility that if you reduce oxalate, there is less of calcium oxalate crystallization uh, in the urine and in the tissues, so by reducing the amount of oxalate, uh, you should reduce the amount of calcium oxalate formation. The second reason is because when this data are coming from the uh, Mayo Clinics Registry, which shows that patients who have a low amount of oxalate excretion uh, will have renal problems much later in life than those who have a high amount of oxalate excretion who will get to this stage of end-stage renal disease much earlier. And the third, and that's very important um, information we have in the literature, is in patients who receive the so-called preemptive liver transplantation. Preemptive liver transplantation means 
patients who received a liver transplantation before they were having the problems with the kidney. And a liver transplantation does, it actually will provide the body with the whole functioning gene. And we know that after a preemptive liver transplantation, the oxalate excretion returns to normal very quickly. Um, in these patients, we know that their renal function remains stable. So by normalizing their oxalate excretion to normal, their renal function remains stable. And I think all these three points in summary mean that surrogate of that oxalate excretion should be uh, a good surrogate for the disease. Even before moving into to clinical trials, you, you've got to make a, a decision as to whether there's enough of a signal in, in a potential therapeutic to warrant using, moving it into human clinical testing. Were, were there animal models for the disease? How much of a channel challenge did that present? And one, what did you see in preclinical testing that indicated that this was a, a potential therapeutic worth pursuing? Yes, uh, that's a good question. So there is uh, an excellent uh, animal model, a so-called transgenic model in mice, where mice actually had the, the human disease gene. Uh, so they, in their liver, have the same disease gene like the humans have. And actually, these mice secrete huge amounts of oxalate in their urine. So if in these animals our drug has been shown to reduce the amount of oxalate excretion to near normal. So I think this is a good predictive animal model which leads us to believe that there is a high chance that in human trials we will be able to replicate this and show the same degree in oxalate excretion as we have seen in this animal model. Patients are, are playing a, a critical role in helping drug companies understand what meaningful results would be to them. Whether a, a study design would be too onerous and, and other issues like that, at, at what point do you bring patients into your discussions and, and how do you go about doing that? Yes, uh, patients are very, very critical uh, for development in, in, in rare diseases. So uh, for another disease, uh, we recently had uh, the first meeting with the FDA, so-called pre-IND meeting. And at this stage already, we brought in uh, a patient representative uh, who was uh, uh, a patient himself and the president of uh, um, a patient organization uh, to help us facilitate the discussion uh, with the FDA. And actually, at the end of the meeting, the, 
the deputy director of the FDA looks at the patient representative and uh, um, thanks him for participating and saying that you were the most important person in this meeting. So uh, patient engagement is is key at an early stage of development. So uh, what we are planning for for our program is not only to have clinical advisory boards, but also to have a patient advisory board where we ask patients whether these what we are measuring in this study is this meaningful to them. Is there anything else what is important to them uh, which we are not measuring? So uh, the dialogue with the patient uh, the patient involvement is is one of the key aspects of, of any rare disease uh, development. Well, at what point do you bring patients into the discussion, and where where along the continuum of drug discovery and development to marketing do you find they they have the greatest value? Well, early on. So um, you know. For we right now running uh, a phase one study, and for this study, we had already patients looking at the design of our study, whether they think it's feasible, it can be done because they have to collect uh, uh, multiple times the 24 hour urine. Uh, they looked at the patient's informed consent and we're advising us whether the language we use is something patients will understand or are there other parts of the trial which we uh, are not describing so well. So we had already at this early stage, we had already the patients engaged. And when it then comes to your future plan, I think um, it, it will depend on on the design of your trial. Will uh, a placebo-controlled trial be acceptable to the patient population? How long would they accept uh, this uh, placebo-controlled trial to continue? Would they accept the placebo for six months, 12 months? Uh, at what point um, would you have, would you offer uh, the placebo patients to go on drugs what is the willingness of patients to accept risk um, in 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 this uh, uh, disease? It's 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 a risk benefit assessment. So that's exactly the kind of dialogue you need with patients early on uh, before your your draft your protocols. And you're dealing with a disease that has. Uh, a I believe you said about a thousand patients in the United States. Is that correct? Yes, something like this. Yeah. How do you go about finding an adequate number of patients to conduct clinical studies, let alone market the drug? How, how difficult is that? How do you go about it? Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's a challenge. Uh, that's a challenge. Um, the patient organization um, are willing to help uh, because. In, in this uh, uh, case of hyperoxaluria, 
uh, the uh, Australia and uh, Foundation uh, has uh, a patient network uh, where they have a registry of patients. So they have a long list of patients who signed up in this organization and who are willing to participate in clinical trials. So what they would do at this point, uh, they would, once we are ready to go in, into uh, a clinical trial, send out an email to their registered uh, patients and say, this company is uh, starting a clinical trial. Is, if you're interested, here is the link uh, to the study. And uh, by this way, they can then contact the, the clinical study center. We're also working right now on a so-called patient engagement website um, where patients can directly go and find information about the clinical trial, find information about uh, the clinical trial site so that they can then directly go to the um, investigators of the study around them and ask whether they could participate in, in the study. But it remains a challenge. So the clinical trial we are anticipating will uh, be a trial not only in the U.S. and in Europe, but also in, in many other uh, countries of this world. The FDA likes double-blind placebo-controlled trials for their studies, but patients would prefer to all get access to therapy rather than a, a placebo, certainly when there's no existing therapy. How do you address this? And is it a barrier to getting patients to participate? Um, in general, you, you are right uh, that, that patients do not like placebo crowds, and especially in a pediatric population, it creates issue. And 50% and of all rare diseases are uh, pediatric diseases, and um, a, a placebo-controlled trial uh, uh, provides difficulties. On the other hand, what patients also want is if this drug is effective, that it actually uh, is available to them as early as possible. And as other disease areas have shown that if companies are not following the advice of regulatory authorities and are doing open-label studies, and there are a lot of questions around the interpretation of these, these uh, results, and they have to go back and do another study and do another study. So in the end, it really prolongs the, uh, the time until the drug is available um, I, I think patients start understanding that it's sometimes better to, to do this required trial and have a clear interpretation of whether the drug works or not and then um, have it available than uh, doing open-label studies which um, make it difficult for the FDA and other regulatory authorities uh, to judge whether the drug actually does what it's supposed to do. We're in an age of social media. I know 
we recently had a case where news of a trial being halted uh, became public because a patient parent had posted on Facebook about an adverse reaction uh, and not the company sponsoring the trial. This can be an issue not only from keeping a study that's blinded, blinded, but also from being a public company. How do you deal with this? Yes, we we had a discussion about this uh, recently. One one way to deal with this to actually have the patient ask the patient to sign not to provide any information about the trial on social media because exactly um, of this reason. Um, but of course, that that in in, in, in contrast to uh, what, what patients feel their right is to talk about uh, uh, their experience. So it, 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 it's really a, a difficult issue for us. Um, and to be honest with you, we, we haven't come to, to a real uh, uh, conclusion uh, what we're going to do about it. Uh, it it is uh, uh, it is a challenge in 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 general. Uh, some of the patient organization what they actually do they have so called closed uh, groups so that nobody else than the patients can go in there and uh, not somebody posing as a patient can go in there. Uh, but it it. It, it's it's for sure uh, uh, an issue, and I I'm not sure uh, we will come up with uh, a, a good solution. That's just the way it is. Ralph Roskamp, Chief Medical Officer of Dicerna. Ralph, thanks so much for your time today. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.